Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Justin Katches. And I'm Stephen Avila. Today we have an awesome guest, NYU professor and practicing lawyer, Mira Davji. Justin and I both had the pleasure of taking professional responsibility with Professor Dave G. It not only was a rewarding experience, but it allowed us the opportunity to be self-reflective and talk about some of the more important social issues we don't often get the chance to discuss here at business school. Definitely a memorable class here at Stern, and I can't wait for all the incoming students to take her as well. But before we jump in, I want to acknowledge and hear from Yulia Podolny, who produced this episode. Yulia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Mira teaches at NYU both here at Stern and at the law school. She also has a law practice in which she helps social sector organizations with their legal needs. I met Mira recently through the process of producing this episode, and I am so inspired by her story and her refreshing outlook on a breadth of topics, including having a multidisciplinary career, mentorship, diversity and inclusion, and many other points as well. I am so excited for our listeners to get to know Mira. Sounds like another great episode. Thank you for all your help, Yulia. Justin, you ready to get started? Cue that music. Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Stephen Avila. And I'm Justin Katches. And today we have Professor Mira Davji on the program. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm happy to be here. So, Mira, in true Stern Chats fashion, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Sure. Um, my name is Mira Davji. I'm a practicing attorney here in New York City. Um, I came to New York City from Toronto, Canada, which is where I'm originally from, about 10 years ago when I was recruited after law school. And I practice commercial law, so general contract law, corporate law. I advise businesses, foundations, and nonprofits. And I have transitioned to a broader consulting role with respect to ethical culture, diversity, and inclusion. And I'm also an adjunct professor here at Stern. That is true. And both Stephen and I were your students for professional responsibility. Right. Uh, Full which, disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> which all of uh, our incoming listeners uh, will, will take at some point here. Uh, so we'd like to start these conversations all the way back at the beginning. So you mentioned you grew up in Toronto. Can you tell us about what your early life was like, your family? Yeah. Um, I had a great childhood in Toronto. Um, Canada's a very multicultural country. My parents are immigrants from East Africa. They came to Toronto in the 1970s independently. They met in St. Jamestown, which is a really... Um, interesting, diverse neighborhood in the city where a lot of new immigrants first come. And uh, they went to school in Canada. They got married. I was born in the early 80s and was fortunate enough to have been exposed to a broad range of kind of interests growing up. I got to, I played hockey, I played soccer, I was interested in music, I learned how to speak French. So childhood in Toronto was great. I went to an international high school and then I came to the U.S. Uh, to Georgetown for undergrad. Went back to Canada for law school and then zigzagged my way back to the U.S. after law school. <laughs> Is it required as a Canadian to play hockey growing up? Yeah. Or is that? Yeah, <laughs> mandatory. When you're eight, they put you on skates. In fact, they start kids even younger than eight. I was wow. late at eight years old. Okay, okay. Yeah. And what brought you to uh, Georgetown? Uh, the Walsh School of Foreign Service. I was really interested in Model United Nations and uh, debate when I was in high school. And I had memorized the map of the world and all of the rivers and oceans. And I wanted Seriously? to. Yes. That's this amazing. was what I did. I had a giant map and an almanac. And so I would. Cool. Th yeah. Complete nerd. <laughs> <laughs> but I found, my, I found my, my people because at the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, everyone was like that. Everyone loved foreign affairs. Everyone loved current events. Um, a very international uh, incoming freshman class. Mm. And so I studied at the School of Foreign Service quite explicitly in international studies for four years in international political economy. What did you think of Washington, D.C.? Did you enjoy living there? I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. It was an interesting time to be there. It was when um, President Bush was still in office. We had a couple of anthrax scares. I'm not sure mm. how much you remember about that period. It was mm -hmm. 2002 mm -hmm. to 2006. Um, 
for me, it was exciting to have left home, to have left my country. I knew literally not a single person uh, that lived in the D.C. area. I had some family in the United States, but they were not in D.C. So it was it was an exciting time of my life. I bet. So if you could talk a little bit more about being the child of immigrant parents and growing up in, in Canada, what was it like to be a young Mira? Mm-hmm. It was exciting. It was adventurous. Um, there, there was a lot for me to grapple with because I think being the child of immigrants, you are inherently exposed to multiple cultures from a very young age. And so you are constantly negotiating the boundaries between the values and norms that your parents have grown up with and have kind of infused in you and your home life with your school life, you know, your outside life, your civic life. And so for me, what that meant was um, speaking a different language at home than I spoke with my friends. Um, It meant explaining to my friends sometimes some of the different cultural nuances that we had in our home that they may not have been familiar with. You know, we don't wear shoes in the house. We didn't grow up eating pork. Um, My parents don't necessarily understand um, Western music or popular culture. You know, there were movies, references that I'd never heard of. And Mm -hmm. even though I was born in Toronto, I was born in Canada, there's still another culture there um, that I was exposed to that they maybe, you know, that other people maybe weren't. So my parents are from Tanzania of Indian descent. And so there's a hybrid even in that, Mm -hmm. in that there were three generations of South Asians living in East Africa and then my parents immigrated to Canada. And so I'm, I don't know, a mesh of all of these cultures, <laughs> right? So how did that change when you moved to the U.S.? I think for me, starting at Georgetown as an 18-year-old was actually quite a shock. Um, Toronto's a very diverse city, and it's also very integrated. So what you don't have and what I didn't actually have exposure to growing up was the self-segregation that is actually quite common in in U.S. cities. And so for me, going to the cafeteria at Georgetown was quite a shock. You know, he had all the sort of students that looked like they were of Indian descent all sitting at one table together. And I'd never identified that way. I'd never actually thought to myself that I would choose my friends based on their ethnicity or on their race. And that was very apparent from the minute I stepped onto campus that you had self-segregated groups of friends. And so I didn't fit in, quite frankly. I didn't fit in. I didn't quite relate to those students who had come directly from the Indian subcontinent because my family had been three generations removed. I also didn't necessarily relate to the East African society either um, because I think being Canadian and looking like an Indian meant that I wasn't automatically included in the African events, the African social life on campus. Um, I, I think for me, it was a, it was a stark kind of reminder of the, um, of the multiculturalism that I had taken for granted in Toronto. And it was kind Mm. of a reminder that I, that you can't always um, expect that other communities are going to be as integrated. Um, and also a kind of a call to action. I, I became a, a somewhat of a preacher telling people that they shouldn't actually determine their friends based on ethnicity and, and appearance and that there's more to it than that. And I had quite a diverse group of friends in undergrad as a result. You know, I feel like in America, race is so <clears throat> front and center in everything. All our conversations about policy, our society, so integrated in our, our fabric of our life. And I'm curious, as a Canadian, how does that differ from how Canadians maybe approach race and, you know, your approach to multiculturalism versus your time in Washington, D.C.? You know, it wasn't so race and ethnicity wasn't as prominent in sort of the Canadian dominant discourse when I was growing up. It is it has become more prominent now. And I think that's actually a ripple effect from what's happening in the United States. Mm. Um, but when I was growing up, you you really didn't speak kind of overtly about socioeconomic disparities in race. You talk about poverty. You talk about fortunate versus disadvantaged. Um, but race didn't really come into play explicitly. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes it did on specific issues, but it wasn't sort of a constant undercurrent 
like it is here. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, I think that is changing. I think that what I'm hearing, and I haven't lived in Toronto for 10 years now, but what I'm hearing from my colleagues and my friends back home is that that, is, um, that, that rhetoric is kind of crossing over in, into Toronto. And so you are having more overt conversations about race, not necessarily progressive conversations, conversations sort of going back to how Canada might have been in the 70s when my parents first came. Mm. You know, and they experienced a very different Canada than I experienced, even though it was only 10 years later that mm. I was born. Yeah. It's interesting that that story that you mentioned about you, uh, you know, being an advocate and being a preacher to your friends. Uh, I'm imagining a young a young mirror standing up in front of a crowd, much the way that you stood up in front of us and, and taught us about professional responsibility. And it sounds like it, it, it started young. Um, I'm curious, what did you want to be as a kid? What was what was your aspiration, other than being a hockey player, of course? <laughs> <laughs> um, I I used to want to be a teacher. I used to line up my my stuffed animals um, on my bedroom floor and name them all, and then have class. And so, it's funny how life works, right? That's I, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I didn't I didn't allow myself to go into teaching. I told myself that I had to be either a doctor or a lawyer or that I had to make some sort of big scientific discovery. I had very kind of grand ambitions. But it's funny how, you know, when you're passionate about something and you care about something, it finds its way back into your life. So I was invited to teach here in the fall of 2016. So it's been just over three years now. And um, it's been an incredible joy. I, I absolutely love teaching. It's so different from practicing law, and it has opened up my eyes to another side of myself, another side to issues and learning and, and growing as, um, as I have, both in terms of the substance of what I teach and in terms of just kind of how I interact with people. It's so. interesting you say you wanted to be a teacher, but you felt like you had to be a doctor or a lawyer beforehand. We know you went to law school and you did become a lawyer. So what went through your decision process before deciding ultimately to go to law school? Um, well, in full disclosure, my father's a lawyer. And I think that that had to have had some impact on my decision. I originally entered uh, college wanting to be a doctor. So I was pre-med. And when it got to organic chemistry, <laughs> that all went down the tube. Always the downfall. <laughs> <laughs> the professor on the first day of class drew a picture of a molecule on the board. And it was just a very simple sort of hexagon shape with some lines and dots on it, right, as, as molecules tend to be. And he said, close your eyes and flip this image in your mind. And I just sort of, I thought it was a joke. I was like, what? You want me to flip an image in my mind and draw it out? And I just, my spatial abilities, just my brain doesn't work that way. I can't flip images in my mind. And so in that moment, I was like, I can't, I can't be a doctor. And so my default, you know, was, well, if it's not med school, it's law school. And I don't, I don't advocate that approach to decision making. I'm just being honest about Sure. How, you know, what, what went through my mind in that moment. Was that pressure from your parents or from your ex, you know, your expectations for yourself to be a doctor or a lawyer? Because we do hear that from a lot of people. No, no. In fact, my parents were quite the opposite. They were hippies. And my father um, would repeatedly tell me, hmm. uh, don't be a lawyer. Don't hmm. be a lawyer. Do something that you're passionate about. Um be an artist or a musician or do, you know, one of the many things that he didn't allow himself to do. My parents grew up in poverty. And I think that when you grow up in poverty, there's a different set of expectations, of goals, of kind of your definition, your world of success is limited in some senses to financial freedom, to financial independence. And you can mm -hmm. understand why that might be for them. And for me, he said, well, you don't have this, um, this need to, to, achieve financial freedom. You know, we've done the hard work for you. We've given you the opportunities. So you should really pursue something that you care about. And I remember him saying to me, you know, you can be a garbage collector, but you should be the happiest and the best garbage collector that there is out there. And so it definitely wasn't coming from my parents. It may have been more subtly coming from the broader community that I was in. I went to very um, high performance schools. My high school was a school a very high-performance high school where a lot was expected out of us. And so it may have come through the environment somehow, um, but it definitely wasn't kind of directly communicated to me. Mm -hmm. And you decided to move to New York to pursue law school. Is that right? No, I went to law school in Toronto. You did? Okay. And I got recruited out of my second year of law school by an, a law firm 
in New York, a global corporate law firm, but for their New York office. And okay. so I came down in between my second and third year of law school for an internship program. Okay, which was happening during a very interesting time in global events, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yes, yes. I lucked out big time because I summered in 2008 when things were still very rosy uh, in June, July, and August of 2008. And mm-hmm. so I got wined and dined and got full exposure to firm life as, um, as a first-timer in New York City. I really enjoyed myself. And I, and I really bonded with the other law students that had been recruited as part of this internship class. Um, at the end of the summer, we were all given offers to come back. There were 86 of us. And of course, as you know, in you know late August, early September of 2008, the first signs of economic collapse started to surface. And so the law firm that I had been recruited to work at offered us a really sweet deal. Um, they offered a one-year deferral on our employment in exchange for compensation. So I got paid to not work for a year of my life. Amazing. Where do I sign up for that? (laughs) (laughs) You need a global economic collapse. I mean, it was (laughs) sounds like business school. Incredible. (laughs) 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 Who's paying who there? (laughs) Well, what I did with it was was I backpacked the world. Amazing. Um, Say more. Twenty six countries, mostly by myself, with the encouragement of my parents, for whom this was this is what life's about. You know, the hippie dream, right? You know, I said to my dad, "Well, what you know, what about the job? What if it's not there when I come back? And should I do something that builds my resume? Maybe I can do a master's degree, or I can get permission from the firm to do sort of pro bono work that wouldn't be in direct competition with the corporate law." Um, And he said to me categorically, "Like you're 26 years old, you're never going to have an opportunity like this again. Are you kidding me? You want to build your resume?" This is what life is about. Go travel. And he explicitly said, go to China, go to the developing world, go to countries that are not going to stay the way they are in the next two, three, four, five years um, and really push yourself out of your comfort zone. So it was, yeah, funny enough, growing up, it was me that was the more kind of risk averse, conservative, um, pragmatic voice. And my parents were the ones that encouraged me to um, sort of take risks and enjoy the moment and and to, yeah, to think more creatively about my life. Yeah, and, and traveling alone in particular can be a pretty formative experience, and it can really change who you are and how you think about the world uh, and how you think about yourself and what's important to you. Absolutely. Did you find, did you find that similar experience when you went off on your, on your one-year sabbatical? Absolutely. I don't hesitate to say that I came back a different person. Mm-hmm. In what way? My connections with other people, uh, my connections with myself, uh, the narrative, you know, the voice that's constantly playing in your head, that changed. It changed fundamentally for the better. I think some of that pressure that I had put on myself that you could hear that came up with, you know, my life options being doctor or lawyer, you mm-hmm. know, um, the perfectionism. And, I, and I, I wouldn't say I overcame it completely. Obviously, it's a, it's a lifelong journey. I still, I think, feel at times that I allow perfectionism to stop me from taking risks. But that experience, um, the lack of control, the trust in strangers, the shared common humanity, the respect for the environment, just just all of it to, together. It's just being completely out of my comfort zone as well, being dependent on other people. Um, there were some great lessons there. Yeah, it's a great parallel for people entering business school or a graduate program and thinking about the people they want to be, the things that they want to do, uh, the things that they think about, um, and how amazing that you get this one-year sabbatical, if you will, uh, to travel the world. What's it like returning back to New York and going from that life to working at a corporate law firm? I imagine the expectations are just way out of control. (laughs) Complete opposite end of the spectrum, like as far that way as you can go. That's right. It was a rough rough transition back, I have to say. (laughs) I mean, I spent every day outdoors during that year. I made an effort to be outdoors every single day, all day long. And so being in an office for 12 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week was rough. Mm. Um, Also, just the nature of the work. um, Law, especially when you're first starting out, law is far less collaborative um, 
than you might think. There are, of course, teams, and we do work together, but through the interface of technology. So it's often through email or th over the phone. There's very little kind of face-to-face -face time, especially as a very junior associate. You're not meeting with clients. If you are getting FaceTime, it's with a mid-level associate who's who's just sort of barking instructions at you and moving on, not because not because they're a bad person, just because they're, you're under such tremendous time pressure that communication becomes less about um, getting to know someone and creating a bond or intimacy. It becomes very practical. And so it's just, here's what I need. You know, it, it's emotionless, and it doesn't really build connection in mm. a way. And so it was rough for me going from having this year of bonding and contemplation and thinking very broadly about my life and meaning and purpose to, you know, correct all the defined terms in this 300-page credit agreement. Go. Ooh, that sounds exciting. <laughs> uh, so when you start, um, how did you approach developing an expertise or kind of being more of a generalist? Is it something that you kind of can control on your own or is it something that's built into the program? How did you think about that? And then draw the draw the line from there to where you're currently focused, which is advising on, on nonprofits. So I recognize that in a number of professions, the law included, there's a pressure to specialize. And that makes sense, right? In a free market economy where you have a skill set that can't be reproduced, your value will go up. You know, you'll be you'll be essential in some in some way. And so the, the more nuanced, the more the more of a niche you can carve out for yourself and the more specialized your skill set, the less mm -hmm. likely it is that anyone else can replace you. And so that makes sense, I think from a pragmatic perspective. It doesn't work for everyone. And it certainly didn't work for me. So I I fought against the pressures to specialize. And I continue to fight against those pressures today. <laughs> I am a true believer in the virtues of being a generalist. And what I mean by that is being able to draw on multiple different disciplines um, and to kind of cross-reference knowledge across, for example, I mean, you took my class on um, professional responsibility, it draws on philosophy, it draws on psychology, there's some law, there's some personal kind of um, contemplation about your life, your family, your religion, um, your identity. I, I, I'm a true believer in that the new economy, the world of automation and artificial intelligence will actually value cross-disciplinary thinking more than um, it has in the past because I think that that niche expertise will be more easily replaceable mm. in a lot of cases um, through technological advance, whereas creativity, um, sort of free-flowing ideas, being, being, being willing to experiment with applying the tools of one discipline to another discipline, I think that may turn out to be a uniquely human cap capability. Mm. So that's something that I fought in the law firm. I remained unassigned to a particular department for three and a half years, much the disappointment of my super supervisors. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a long time to remain a generalist in a corporate law firm. And then when I left the law firm environment, I started my own practice. And again, I try to expose myself to as broad a range of documents as I can. So anything from employment agreements, intellectual property agreements, to I negotiate finance documents, vendor contracts. I look at um, anything and everything that's basically that's written down on a piece of paper and signed, right? I tell my clients, run it all by me. Um, and I, I like that. I like that I, I, you know, they say jack of all trades, master of none. Um, mm -hmm. But I'd say that there's value in that. And if your personality is set up that way, if you're naturally curious, then don't fight it. Don't push yourself to to choose early on. I hear a lot of that pressure coming from my students that I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to choose. Um, you know, forgive yourself and and give yourself permission not to choose would be my advice. I mean, I, that is a conversation that I think many of us have, particularly as we try to figure out what to specialize in and how to become an expert, uh, particularly those of us that are going into consulting where it's like, do I become a generalist? Do I specialize in a particular industry or trade? How do you balance your passion for something versus maintaining kind of that generalist idea? If everything's of intrigue to you and everything's interesting to you, you know, how... How do you kind of become that jack of all trades and, you know, not sacrifice, you know, maybe pursuing a particular passion of yours, you know, down the road? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great question. I struggle with that, to be honest. I mean, right now I'm sort of I, I have my own law firm that I work at part time. I'm a part time adjunct professor. I'm also a consultant when it comes to ethical culture, diversity, inclusion issues. So you can already hear 
the multiple hats that I wear mm-hmm. um, at the same time, in, you know, in my professional life. And I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I think my personality naturally gravitates towards that. But I don't recommend it for everyone. Uh, it, it definitely means that there are times when I am not available to my clients because I'm teaching a class. So you give something up by being a generalist. You do. Right. And you have to be conscious of that. And you have to deliberately acknowledge that your identity won't be defined by necessarily being the expert in one particular field. So you mentioned that you remained a generalist for three years there despite uh, what your supervisors wanted. And I'm curious... In a big corporate law firm like that, how do you foster, you know, kind of a mentor and a mentorship role with someone without kind of becoming a part of their department? And and were you able to do that? And and did those mentors play a big role in in your career moving forward? Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. Mentorship is key to professional success, in my opinion. You really can't do it without them. Um, But the thing about mentors is that you don't get to choose your mentors, you know, you you get chosen. Mentors see what you're about. They see your integrity. They see your work ethic. Um, they maybe see a little bit of themselves in you, and then they choose to invest in you. And I was fortunate enough to have exposure to some really phenomenal legal practitioners, some partners in the law firm who um, saw something of value in me and chose to invest. And I think part of why they did that, despite the fact that I didn't opt into a practice group for three and a half years, was because I was very honest about why I was there. I was very honest about the fact that I was deliberately trying to develop a broad set of skills. Um, I think authenticity actually gets you a lot further than people um, may realize. And Mm -hmm. so just being authentic with my supervisors, with my mentors, Um, genuinely wanting to learn from them, not being strategic about which deals I took and which deals I didn't, and really just saying, hey, give me exposure to what you think is going to help me grow as a lawyer, Um, is what I think was appreciated by them. And they were formative. I mean, they were absolutely instrumental in guiding my career, in my clients, in the fact that I could leave a big firm and start my own practice immediately, Mm -hmm. right? Like that, I don't take that for granted, and how does that translate to you now as a professor, being a mentor for some students or, or looking for mentorship within the academic world? How does that experience at, you know, within corporate law transferred here and influence some of the way that you go about mentorship and being a mentor to others? I also, you know, I, I seek mentees in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm exposed to a lot of students, and I think that's great because I can choose to invest my time and energy in the students that I feel are putting in on their own on their own account, putting in time, effort, creativity, energy into their pursuits. And I also encourage students to seek not only mentors, because generally mentors are going to see the world from a similar perspective to your own, right? Mentors, because they choose you, they sort of see themselves in you. Um, I think it's really important to also seek feedback from people who wouldn't otherwise be comfortable mm. um, giving you feedback. And that's really tricky to do. There's, a, there's an art to it, and you can learn it, you can practice it, and that is creating a, um, an environment in which other people feel comfortable telling you the truth. Mm. And so if you're not getting constructive criticism, if you're not getting feedback, then my response is, you know, what can you do to create an environment that is more trusting so that other people around you feel comfortable telling you um, about your weaknesses, because we all have them, right? We all have weaknesses. It's just about whether or not someone's actually going to tell you what they are. Speaking of creating an environment where people can thrive, uh, you mentioned earlier your passion and the work that you do in diversity and inclusion. I'm curious if you could just share uh, with our listeners what that work that you do do and maybe just your approach to the subject and, and your thoughts more broadly on the importance of this topic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I said, I started out as a, as a strictly general counsel, like an outside legal advisor to businesses, foundations, nonprofits, startups. And what I found is that my clients were leaning on me more and more for non-legal advice. And so rather than just asking me to review documents and provide procedures, policies, advice on litigation risk and the sort of classic legal counsel questions, I started to get questions around employee engagement. I started to get questions around interpersonal dynamics. You know, how can we um, foster more ethical behavior? How can we get our leadership to really walk the walk and not just talk the talk? And that's when it sort of hit me that no matter how robust 
the policies and procedures that are in place. You know, I can draft the most beautiful whistleblower agreement um, for a company, the most beautiful policy, and yet nobody will actually report fraud. Why? The law itself alone is is without power. It doesn't have inherent power. We have to give it power by believing in its value, right? And so corporate culture becomes integral to ethics and it becomes in integral to legal compliance. And so what I found was that my role as a legal advisor was so limited, but my role as a counselor, as a general strategic advisor was virtually limitless in the sense that I could advise on a broad range of issues that fell way beyond the scope of what a traditional legal advisor would be asked to opine on. And so that includes questions like, how do I manage a multicultural workplace? Um, what norms and behaviors from my, you know, my teammates' um, respective cultures and experiences are relevant and appropriate to bring to work and which ones aren't? And how do we navigate this new world of diversity and inclusion, right? It's, a, it's a the catchphrase of the day. But in reality, we've been dealing with it for a number of decades now. We just haven't called it that. But there have been, um, there have been conflicts between a, a company that's trying to establish a dominant culture um, and all of the different people that actually constitute that, that company and that culture. And sort of, you know, what do you, what do you bring to the workplace and what do you leave at home? And so that's sort of where I'm at right now. I'm giving legal advice. I'm giving ethical advice. But more broadly speaking, how do you actually um, create corporate <clears throat> culture that increases your bottom line, but that also encourages a more diverse workforce to come and thrive and to contribute to your business? So are there any moments uh, of your career where you felt the impact or, or were made aware in particular of being uh, a woman in law? Yes. Um, there's one moment in particular that stands out. I was practicing at a large corporate commercial law firm here in Manhattan. I had a team of about four junior attorneys that were working under me. We'd been up all night. It was a Monday morning closing. And, you know, on a day of a closing, you, you've you been there all night. You're exhausted, but you're ready. You know, you're ready to, to finalize the deal. There's a few items that are usually still up for negotiation. And it's a big, it's a big day. It's closing day. And so we walk into the conference room where... Um, my clients have been seated, and there's a team of us. And as soon as we walk in, um, the clients stand up, and we've been, you know, we've been corresponding over email, but we'd never actually met in person. And this is actually fairly typical in corporate law: is that um, you don't actually meet clients oftentimes until the closing. And immediately upon walking in the room, um, my junior associate, who is a um, young and dapper looking white male in a suit is acknowledged by the entire client team. And so there's about four or five of them. There's four of us. And he's immediately made the center of attention. You know, thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to get this deal closed. We're looking forward to negotiating with you. Um, meanwhile, he's he sort of just joined the team. I filled him in on some of the details, but he's in the room to take notes. That's his, that's his role in that meeting. Um, and he sort of embarrassingly looks over at me, and I'm still standing there waiting to be acknowledged. I'm the senior lawyer on the deal. I'm the one with whom they will be negotiating. And what um, what ends up happening is that within a few minutes of them settling in, I'm asked to get coffee. Wow. And I have and I have this moment where you know I'm like, okay, um, I know what's going to happen if I leave the room. I know that they will not be able to proceed without me. It's not going to happen. There's nobody else in the room who knows the deal like I do, and no one's qualified to speak to it. So everything will go on pause if I leave the room to get coffee. So I have a choice to make. I can go get the coffee. I can express my disappointment, maybe cause some embarrassment about that question. Um, I didn't, I, you know, in that moment, I left the room. I sort of took a moment to myself, took a deep breath, and thought... I don't even know how to make coffee. I had to get my assistant at the time um, to help me to get coffee, and she showed me how to work the machine. It took quite a while, actually, for us to figure it out and bring the coffee back. And in the meantime, I can just imagine what was happening in that room. Um, so my junior associate was made to explain, you know, now he's the one in the room with the paralegals, to explain that, you know, we can't actually get the deal started because you just sent the senior negotiator out to get coffee. Um, 
And I, and I knew that was going to happen without me, whether I was the one to say it or not. It was that conversation had to be had. And it was almost better for me that I wasn't there. Um, it gave me time and space away from the incident to kind of collect my thoughts. And I came back in with a big cheery smile on my face and said, here, you know, I didn't know how to work the machine, but I figured it out. And mm -hmm. all right, we got coffee, we're caffeinated, we're ready to go. Um, didn't, you know, didn't actually bring it up at all. Um, we sort of started to sit down and um, my counterparty looked at me right in the eyes and sort of put his hand on the table and said, I'm so sorry. That was that was grossly inappropriate. And I just I have to apologize. I'm, I'm so ashamed. He was bright red. This was a man probably in his late 60s, you know, mm -hmm. maybe in his early 70s. Um, and, and I could see the sincerity. I could see the shame on his face. And I said, don't worry about it. It's fine. He said, no, no, it's not fine. It's, it's actually not, it's not fine at all. Um, and I don't know what to say in this moment, like what I, what I can possibly say to fix this situation and to assure you that I didn't mean any harm by what I, what I did, you know? And I just said to him, look, um, I get it. I said, I get it. You, you know, there weren't a lot of lawyers that looked like me when you were in law school and in the time that you've been practicing. And in fact, most of the people who looked like me probably were assistants getting coffee. And I think when I said that, it shocked him and it disarmed him because um, in that moment, what he was expecting was something different than empathy and compassion. And I was able to find it within myself, I think, because I had that break, because I was able to leave the room and collect my thoughts mm -hmm. to come back and approach the situation with empathy and compassion and say, hey, here is a man who, you know, whether or not he meant anything by his behavior, um, I'd rather I'd rather interpret his his behavior as having been an innocuous mistake. And I can move on from that situation, um, rebuilding that relationship with him. And, and there was some rebuilding that needed to be done. It wasn't that there hadn't been an offense. It wasn't that there hadn't been a harm. There had, there had been. But the question is, how do you want that relationship to proceed forward? And mm -hmm. I can guarantee you that he never made that mistake again. I mean, this man was, you know, very apologetic, very grateful, and continued to um, engage with me and invest in the relationship that we had going forward. Um, and that, I think, was a lesson for me in approaching difficult situations as, as a woman of color, as someone who um, also has always looked kind of young for my age. I think that it's important to, um, to check your emotions in those situations and to remind yourself that everyone Everyone makes mistakes. And that's not to say that we shouldn't call people out at times. There's a time and place for advocacy, mm -hmm. and there's also a time and place for bridge building. And those are two very different skills. So if you're in advocacy mode, you're going to call people out. You want to win the argument. When you're in bridge building mode, it's not about winning. It's really about um, the relationship, the conversation, the broader issues. How are we going to move society forward? And there's a place for bridge builders, um, I, I believe, and in an important place for bridge builders in this in this current culture of um, of advocacy and mm -hmm. and this call out culture where we like to label and we like to point out each other's mistakes and we you know we sort of get an upper hand and we get social credit when we do that. Um, I think that there's an important valuable place for bridge builders who can sometimes manage their emotions and control the conversation mm -hmm. uh, more effectively. Thank you for sharing that story. And I imagine as a woman and as a person of color, this is way too commonplace in the professional environment. And I know we talk a lot about this in our professional responsibility class. Um, and I'm curious, you know, how do you find that balance of being a bridge builder and an advocate, um, you know, in, in when you approach these difficult conversations? You know, is it time and place and it's dependent on your uh, your mood and your personality at the time or the offense? You know, how do you, how do you approach those difficult conversations more broadly? I think that that is something that has evolved throughout my professional life. I think I started out very much as an advocate. It was about um, winning, you know, winning the deal, winning the point on which I was negotiating or getting my version of the document um, finalized. And so in, in law school really prepares you for that adversarial system. I think naturally I, as a, as a former debater, I approached conversations as a win-lose proposition. And I think over the course of my career, I've evolved quite significantly in that I don't approach conversations that way anymore. And I, and I actually deliberately try um, to, to let things go 
in the moment if I see a bigger picture, if I see value in, in, a, in extending the conversation, picking it back up another time when my counterparty might be more receptive, um, when the emotions aren't quite so raw. Um, so for me, it's been a transition from advocacy to bridge building. It's something that I hope to continue to develop throughout my career. And I'd like to eventually get to the place where I can have conversations on topics that I care deeply about that are very controversial, where the person I'm speaking with may not actually know what I believe. And I think there's value in that. I think there's value in being able to restrain your um, your passion and your conviction at times for the mm-hmm. f- for the equally valuable um for the equal, equally valuable kind of contribution that someone else can make to your learning, to your experience, and to just being a good listener. Um, and so being a good listener sometimes involves switching off the advocacy mode and going into a more empathetic, compassionate mode. Which isn't always easy to do. Oh, right? it's so difficult. <laughs> it's so, so difficult, and I struggle with it all the time. Even with, you know, personal relationships, with friends, with family members, I want to say, no, but that's not, you're wrong, and I'm right, and here's why, and let me give you 12 reasons why I'm right, and here's all the evidence. And that just, what I'm finding, at least for me personally, is that that's not as a, as effective in changing their minds um, as listening to them and saying, why do you think that? And, and convinced, and, you know, and like sort of being open to the possibility that they might convince you of something. And in, in doing that and being receptive and trusting and open and non-judgmental, you can actually get to the root of why they believe what they believe. And so I've had fantastic conversations with um, Trump supporters. I've had fantastic conversations with people who believe that um, Muslims should be banned from entering the country. Um, I've had fantastic conversations with gun rights advocates. And I wouldn't have had those conversations five or 10 years ago. I just, I wasn't the person that I needed to be to be able to have those conversations. Mm. And you have a platform as a professor here in the professional responsibility to talk about a lot of these issues. Um, I'm curious what, uh, what your approach to that has been and then how you think business school students are performing or understanding the role of ethics and responsibility in the context of the grind of business school, which is, you know, get the highest paying job that you can. So I'm curious how you how you approach teaching that in the classroom and then what your reaction to what, what your reaction from the students has been. Well, that's something I feel very passionate about. Um, I, I feel like as a business school, we would be misleading you if we led you to choose the highest paying job and and led you to believe that that was what was going to make you happy in the long run. Um, I think more and more evidence is coming out from this field of psychology that shows that if we identify with our careers, if we allow our um, our self-confidence and our self-value to come strictly from our professional careers, that we are vulnerable to the, the, you know, the ebbs and flows of the economy, to the discretion of a supervisor, to kind of chance, right? And that in the long run, those people who have been able to maintain a positive outlook, to be resilient, to accomplish their goals, to come back after failures are not the ones who define themselves based on their professional accomplishments. That there's something deeper, um, there's, a, there's a deeper identity there that needs to be discovered. And so what I try to encourage in my professional responsibility course is um, introspection about where, you know, what you value where that comes from, what is it grounded in? Is it is it from your family? Is it from your religion? Is it from your philosophy? Um, is it from your life experiences, your relationships? And then to have you actually come up with a sense of self that can resist ethical temptations, that can resist sometimes the profit motive, right? The profit motive sometimes is, is the problem when it incentivizes unethical behavior. And so what is going to be your arsenal, what is going to be your amulet, is as we call it in the course, what's going to be your (laughs) amulet um, when temptation comes your way? Uh, And so in that sense, I I broaden the course. You know, it's called professional responsibility, but really it's a course on identity, on on philosophy, on purpose, 
right? It's a course that I hope actually sets you up as young professionals to go for what really matters to you and not necessarily what is being validated or rewarded in the social structures that you might find yourself in. And, and for our listeners, the professional responsibility class is, for all intents and purposes, our ethics, business ethics class that uh, is mandated and required course here um, as part of your Stern curriculum. Um, I'm curious, how do you think the rest of the school incorporates some of these lessons into their um, curriculum? Do you find, you know, that students are coming to you and saying, hey, I really enjoy taking your class? And maybe I'm projecting a little bit because Justin and I have talked about this. But, you know, I think it's really refreshing to be able to talk about these really big issues in a professional responsibility course. But there's a real desire to see it more broadly um, adopted in our curriculum. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that um, and what, you know, what you can say about maybe our business education more broadly. So I don't have the, the privilege of sitting in on your other classes. Um, so everything that I hear is from students. And so you both might be in a better position to speak to that in terms of what other guidance do you get other than maximize profit for shareholders? You know, <laughs> um, do you get in terms That's of decision making? <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, you know, that kills me. It kills yeah. me because you can make a business case for grossly unethical conduct. And mm -hmm. so the fact that you can make a business case for something is not in my view, it's not a valid reason for pursuing a particular action. There has to be something else with that. Um, I love that saying. You can make so, a business case for for uh, an unethical behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, slavery was justified on the premise that it was economically beneficial, uh. right? This country got rich off of it. So you can't you can't point to the bottom line as a justification for behavior. You know, where have we come to if we're still doing that? Yeah. yeah. It's also interesting that, you know, in valuation and corporate finance and strategy, right, we're learning very hard skills, right? Um, but not necessarily learning how to be a leader, right? And learning how to, to inspire people. And, and a lot of that is driven based on self-discovery, which we kind of probe and, and you know, dive deep in, in, in your class, but not necessarily in others. So it's a really interesting kind of other aspect of our business education where it's more inward looking, right? And it's more reflective. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that ultimately will benefit you in the longer run, right? Because being able to build a, an, a great model will only get you so far and only so high in the corporate ladder. But mm -hmm. being confident in being vulnerable, being okay with discomfort can get you a lot farther, right? Having those difficult conversations, which is, you know, what we did in your class and, and you know, all the other incoming students will, will get to experience that as well. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to transition a bit um, because you are, uh, you are a role model here to some degree, right? You are a young female uh, person of color as a professor, and most people walking into this school will, will notice that it is very male-dominated, that there's a lot of white men going into finance here. And I'm, I'm curious, how do you view yourself as kind of that role model, as an example for a lot of people within the school here? Hmm. To be honest, I don't think about it all that much. Um, I like to think that I'm here based on the deeper viewpoint diversity that I bring as a Canadian, as an economist, as a lawyer, um, as a thinker. Uh, but at the same time, of course, I recognize that it's perhaps an anomaly to have someone of my age and perspectives in a business school. Mm -hmm. um, I, I appreciate that the business school has been um, open to incorporating broader perspectives. For example, I'm an attorney. I teach in the business school. There's a social psychologist. There's an anthropologist. There's an English literary professional who teaches in my department. And so we tend to be, the, in the business and society program, we tend to be sort of misfits in the business school. We're, and that's what I love about it. <laughs> uh, it's that we are sort of privilege in the sense that we, we are explicitly mandated to bring in other disciplines in the program. And the Business and Society program runs a number of courses um, in addition to professional responsibility, both in the undergraduate school and in the graduate program. Um, as a leader in terms of, I guess, as a, what, as a role model, um, I guess I don't really think of myself that way. I'm sure, that, I mean, students have approached me and asked for one-on-one -on -one kind of mentorship and coffee chats and that kind of thing, and I've spoken extensively about my career, um, but I hesitate to give anyone advice, to be honest. I, I'm very uncomfortable with telling you what you should do because I'm in no position to know what's going to make you happy 
or what challenges you're going to face. All I can do is tell you about what I've been through and what I've learned about myself. Mm-hmm. Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm very excited <clears throat> about a new course that I'm collaborating on um, called Work, Wisdom, and Happiness mm. with um, a social psychologist here named Jonathan Haidt. And that course really... I think delivers on the promise um, that Stern makes on emotional intelligence and on on leadership, on those soft skills, which I think are um, not sufficiently valued um, necessarily, not just here, but in business school education more generally. And and so that course um, focuses on leadership of self. You know, like you can't lead anyone or anything if you can't be a leader in your own life. And so it's first and foremost looking inwards and thinking about your goals, your priorities, and, and, and looking at the scholarship around happiness and what actually is going to lead you to living a more fulfilling life. And that will translate into your abilities in no matter what you do, whether it's in a business, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're, you know, a, any sort of professional capacity that you're in, your joy and your engagement is going to show. So you're, you're very busy. You've mentioned all the initiatives and the things that you do. How do you find balance in your life and, you know, maybe related to this course that you're developing, this work, life, and happiness? How do you incorporate those lessons to your own life? It's a struggle. (laughs) I want to say yes to every new opportunity because I'm naturally curious, but one of the most important skills that I've learned is actually being able to say no. So nine times out of ten when I'm offered an opportunity, I turn it down, and that's because I have clarity around what's important to me. That, I think, is a skill that I only developed later in my professional life. Um, as an eager young attorney, it was very tempting to say yes to every opportunity available and yes to every client and every meeting and every possible project. And I think that part of what allows me to do so much is the fact that um, I have clarity around what is actually going to make me fulfilled. And that that changes But I've sort of figured out that um, the balance between my personal time, my professional time, finding enough joy and passion in what I do so that it doesn't feel as much like work, um, making time to uh, make sure that I'm physically fit, that I'm mentally fit, that I invest in myself. I think that commitment to self um, is integral to being able to balance all of the all of the demands of being a professional in 2019 in new york city in new york city (laughs) (laughs) not an easy task by any means so as we as we wrap here i'm curious a young stephen and justin are walking into stern for the first time bright-eyed and bushy-tailed take me back (laughs) uh, as we stare graduation in the face um and we run into uh our professor of professional responsibility you and we ask, Professor, what advice would you have for us and all incoming students as we navigate our business school careers here? What would you say? As incoming students? Mm-hmm. I'd say jump right in. Don't be half in, half out. One of my life philosophies is you're either all in or you're all out. I don't do things half-ass. And so if you're going to do business school, then do business school. Get involved, you know. Uh, participate in as many activities as you're interested in as as you can handle take a broad array of courses really take the time to get to know your peers Um, bond you know that's what business school is about and discover yourself in the process so um, I guess yeah that's that's it well and we hope in that uh, journey they also discover to be involved with Stern Chats the premier podcast here on campus <laughs> I know we found passion in it um, but Professor Dave G thank you so much for being here today we really appreciated talking with you and your insight as always is always appreciated so thank you so much you're welcome thank you for having me